I guarantee there's not another church in America where halo characters are given the announcements. <laughs> I, I love it. It is so great to be together with every single one of you to worship and celebrate God today. Uh, on kind of a quirky note, just a little revelation, uh, I'm a quirky guy. Last Sunday night I went to bed and I was exhausted, as you might imagine, and I had this crazy dream that the next phase of our campus development here at the Commons was adding mission control of NASA onto a modular out behind this building. So uh, I dreamed that we built that out back, and that not only did we have mission control, but we actually put in all the launch pads for the space shuttles, and we're actually launching space shuttles here on the campus. Uh, Weird. I have no idea what I'm doing dreaming about our church being in the space shuttle business. It's just odd and Hi, my name's Brian, and I'm quirky. And so on that very uh, unique or quirky note, I want you to know that we have the privilege of launching, no pun intended, a brand new message series this weekend that we call You, as in You, Combat Resolved. And in case you haven't noticed, we're getting in here a little on the Halo Reach craze these days. Uh, Now, I imagine that a whole bunch of us in this room play a lot of video games. So I'm going to ask you to reveal. How many of you have played a video game in the last seven days? Show of hands. Yep. Mm -hmm. Fascinating. Uh, uh, Just a little uh, survey data for you. Last night, almost every hand in the room is up. Saturday night, people. And then at 9 o'clock, you have the godly bunch. There's like three hands up in that room. And here, we're just kind of a mixed bag, maybe like half and half. Whether you play a video, played a video game in the last seven days or uh, not, you know that there's just something about video games, isn't there? Video games kind of draw us out of our mundaneness into a narrative, into a story that's outside of ourselves that we actually get to be a part of creating, unfolding. And the game Halo has really swept up a whole bunch of people into its vortex, hasn't it? And I know that right now, some of you are sitting there going like, okay, I've heard this word Halo several times. I don't think he's talking about angels. What is he talking about? Well, in case you don't know, Halo is an entire franchise of science fiction-themed shooting games for the Xbox, Xbox 360, and the PC. They all revolve around the future struggle of the human race against the alien covenant and flood forces. Several of the games revolve around a character named Master Chief, who is a very enigmatic armored soldier who fights the alien foes with both standard human weapons, including machine guns, pistols, and grenades, as well as various alien firearms that are quite cool. Games in the Halo series, most of them carry the mature rating. And I've sort of uh, created a problem for some of you parents, I understand. Uh, Your kids are coming home saying, Mom, Dad, you won't let me play Halo, but the pastor's talking about it at church. I have to be able to play the game so I can understand what's going on in church. No. No, no, no. Kids, quit working your parents over. Uh, They they carry a mature rating because you're like shooting and killing people. And so, uh, kids, if your parents say no, just, okay, just say, okay, okay. Whatever you say, mom and dad, quit working them over. Leave them alone. Got enough going on. And so, uh, it has the mature rating. You can actually embark on what they call a campaign mode inside of the game, where you control the character Master Chief or another armored warrior or even multiple armored warriors through various narrative based missions. You can command Jeep like vehicles, alien spacecraft, etc., etc. Now, you hear all that and you go, Well, Hopkins, isn't that just a really fancy way to say that Halo is about your character trying to kill another character and those other characters trying to kill your character? You'd be absolutely right. It's a shoot 'em up, bang, bang kind of video game. Sweet. And that's all fiction, isn't it? Video games, they're just fiction. You put the controller down and you shut the machine off and you re-engage in real life. And as we sit in this room right now, speaking of real life, there are some enemies of your heart and your soul that are literally trying to take your heart and take your soul out. Literally. Literally. As you sit here right now, pastor and author Andy Stanley has identified correctly, in my opinion, the most common four enemies that attempt to take over the real estate of our hearts and souls. There are these four. You might write these down if you'd like. Guilt, anger, greed, and jealousy. Those are the big four. Guilt, anger, greed, 
and jealousy. And I promise that not a single person sitting in this room or within the hearing of my voice has ever set out in their life to be owned by one or more of those four enemies of the heart. No one ever says at the start of their life, you know, I want to be the angriest jerk I know of. No one ever says that. Or I think, isn't jealousy cool? I think I'll become the most jealous person on planet Earth. No one's ever said that. Or how about this one? Guilt. It's such a wonderful characteristic. I think I'm just going to wallow in it for all of my days. No one ever says that. Or how about the greed deal? No one has ever said greed is such a fantastic trait. I'm going to be the greediest person on planet earth. No one ever decides to let those enemies in and take over and roam free our hearts and souls. Rather, it just happens, doesn't it? It just happens. And the reason that it just happens is because we're not faced with the question often enough, how's your heart? How's your heart? I mean, Honestly, that question, how's your heart, is not at all encouraged in our culture. Why? Because from the very earliest age, our parents teach us to do what? What do they teach us to do? They teach us to behave, right? Behave. Just behave. Parents, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Would you please just behave? Just a little, right? And when our parents do that, Our hearts could be absolutely dark, evil, gnarly places. But as long as we're behaving publicly, as long as it looks good on the outside, well, then life goes pretty darn well. Now, lots of you, I'd imagine, got spanked by your parents, right? Your parents spanked you. Uh, Mine did me. I think that's what's wrong with me to this day. Just kidding. But if your parents spanked you, you learned at a very early age what kind of behavior it took to avoid an appointment with the spanking spoon or the willow switch or whatever it was for you. We're all smart enough to know that we got to modify our behavior to avoid that pain very early on in life. That means pain, embarrassment, fines, even spankings. They're the tools that our culture uses to focus our attention, just like a laser beam, on our behavior, how we behave. But get this, there's a price of admission to that party, and it's this. We become way more adept at monitoring our behavior than monitoring our heart condition. We forget about that. We're like, whoa, I did all the right stuff, right? And we neglect what's going on right in here. And this is a freebie. This is just an aside. I want you to know, I sit in rooms all week long with the pastoral staff around here, and I want you to know that every single, single pastor on the staff team around Journey consider that question, how's your heart, to be one of their primary roles as your pastors. Checking in with you on the condition of your heart, and that is such important work, folks. Because here's what happens. When your good behavior, when your socially acceptable behavior begins to outstrip and outpace the real you, what's really going on inside of your heart, your whole life will come crashing down. For example, if your heart is only at a level five, say, on the how's it five out of ten, on the how's it really going scale, yet you are fully intent on your behavior being at least an eight or a nine on the good behavior scale, eight or nine out of ten, that means that all of the stuff, the unresolved, messy, gnarly stuff in your heart is eventually going to work its way to the surface and emerge, bubble up in your behavior. It will happen. It'll start to show up in the way you relate to other people, the way you conduct yourself in public, definitely how you conduct yourself in private. It will start to reveal cracks and voids in your character. The real you begins to emerge, which means that if your heart trajectory continues in that same line without any intentional, purposeful attention, all that mess that's growing in here right now will eventually boil over to the place that even your best attempts at behaving will be futile. You will not be able to keep it at bay. And so, how is your heart today? How is your heart today? For the next four weeks, we're going to press into that question collectively, and we're going to allow and invite and permit the truth of God's word to penetrate us and affect us in ways that maybe 
we've not experienced before. We're going to talk about those four primary enemies of the heart, which if we leave them unchecked, can and will eat away at your relationships, your character. Check this out. They'll even eat away at your relationship with God. They just do. And then we're going to move over to the solution side of the equation, quickly, I hope. And we're going to talk about the weapons, the very real tangible weapons that God has made available to all of us. It's not just a select few that get to have these cool weapons. Uh -uh. They're for all of us, which if we effectively mobilize them, can and will destroy those enemies. A lot like a game of Halo. that doesn't make you want to play the game, right? The first enemy we're going to talk about taking out is the enemy of guilt. Another show of hands, if you would be so bold. How many of us in this room have felt guilty at some time in our lives? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've got two up. Yeah, all of us. And because all of us have felt guilty at some point or another in our lives, you know this already. Guilt at its very core says, I owe, right? That's what guilt says. I owe. You do something wrong, and what do you know? Guilt, guilt, guilt. I owe, I owe, I owe. Andy Stanley suggests that almost every single wrong thing any of us ever does boils down actually to an act of theft, which means that if I've stolen from you, if I've wronged you, then I owe you. I am in your debt. When our hearts are most heavy with guilt, what's playing across the news ticker of the LCD screen of our minds is I owe him, and I owe her, and I owe them, and I owe that. I owe. I'm guilty. Think with me for a moment about jailed financier and Ponzi schemer Bernie Madoff, right? You all know who brother Bernie Madoff is, don't you? He said in an interview with representatives of the Securities and Exchange Commission these words, and I quote, I wish they caught me six years ago, eight years ago. I wish they'd caught me six years ago, eight years ago. And you kind of go like, why in the world did he say that? Because I guarantee you that he'd been living with almost unbearable guilt for all of those years. March 12, 2009, Madoff pled guilty to 11 federal offenses. 11. It's estimated he defrauded his clients of some, watch this, $65 billion over a period of approximately 17 years. What's interesting about the 17-year mark is that Madoff says, I wish they had caught me six years ago eight years ago, which is roughly halfway through his scheme, right? So that tells us that for a time, he was coping, he was managing, he was able to deal with the guilt, but then at some point, round about the six or eight year ago mark, it became overwhelming to him, and he just wanted to go down. I wish they had just caught me. He was sentenced to 150 years in prison. He will not ever go free. And you hear a story like Bernie Madoff, and you go, man, That guy owes. He really, really owes. A debt-to-debtor relationship has been clearly established, and it's just the same with all of us. Whenever any of us wrongs another human being, the exact same dynamic is in play. The guilt monster is real. 
It's daunting. And as I stand before you today, the truth is that the only way to shed the guilt that any of us, all of us, are lugging around is for that debt to be paid, that debt to be canceled. I tell you the truth. You can work your whole life. You can serve your whole life. You can give all of your money away. You can give until it hurts. You can pray 24 hours a day, but nothing, no amount of good deeds, no amount of community service, no amount of charitable giving, no amount of church attendance is going to relieve the guilt. It is a debt that we are all encumbered by, which begs the question, what do we do then? How do we unshackle from the guilt debt? How do we slay the guilt monster once and for all? According to God, which is really the only voice that matters, right? We unshackle from the guilt debt. We slay the guilt monster via the incredibly powerful weapon of confession. You might write that down. Confession. We have to, day in and day out, think of our guilt as the enemy and confession as the weapon that does away with the enemy just like a game of Halo. But I want to show you a twist on the confession deal that many of us who follow Jesus and have been around the church might not be accustomed to. So will you let me tease this out a bit? How many of us know the verse 1 John 1 9? Put it up on the screen, it's on your notes page. Lots of us would raise our hands if asked. Oh yeah, I know that verse. We memorized it at some point in our life. Perhaps. Here's what the Bible says, 1 John 1 9. But If we confess our sins to him, that's God, he, again, that's God, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. Some translations render wickedness unrighteousness, right? So we know that verse. Lots of us do. And how many of us approach the whole Christian life with only the perspective of 1 John 1.9? If that's you, you might recognize it because it looks something like this. I screw up. I sin. I blow it. I admit that I messed up. I ask God to forgive me, and on I go. Does that sound at all familiar? I mess up, I sin, I screw up, whatever you want to call it. I admit that I messed up. God forgives me, and on I go. Isn't that really a giant loophole in the Christian faith? Right? It's a giant loophole in the whole of the Christian faith. How many of us, for example, close our day out with that verse in heart and mind? It goes something like this. You lay down in your bed and you go, Lord, I know I sinned today. Would you please recall to my mind all of the sins that I committed today? Because before I fall asleep, I need to empty out my sin bucket should some unforeseen, unfortunate circumstance happen tonight while I'm sleeping, right? How many of us do that very thing? And so if you're anything like me, the litany of sins from that day comes rushing to mind like a tidal wave, right? And you're just ticking them off one by one by one. Lord, forgive me for that one and forgive me for that one. And oh my gosh, I cannot forget that one, Lord, please. And then we sort of lay out the blanket forgiveness clause. And Lord, would you please forgive me for any and all sins that I might have forgotten in this little confession session here? And then we doze off to sleep with our sin bucket completely emptied out. But the trouble is that a whole bunch of us who follow Jesus and have been following Jesus for a long, long time or a short period of time, a whole bunch of us know that come tomorrow morning, some of those very same sins that we just confessed the night before, they're going to be right back in our sin bucket, right? And we're going to do the same thing all over again, and that's just the deal, right? I confess my sin to God. He does his forgiving deal, And that's what it says in the Bible. Onward and upward we go. But Christians, doesn't that start us down a very slippery slope? A very slippery slope? That loophole causes lots and lots of Christians, really good people, just like you and just like me, to stand in the face of temptation and instead of fleeing like a bat out of somewhere, instead we go, well, I know, God, that this behavior is wrong, but if I do it, it will be so fun, it will feel so good, and all I have to do is ask God to forgive me, and then it's just fine because 1 John 1, 9 says it's just fine. God forgives, right? As one guy says about that loophole, loophole, that confession habit begins then to support your sin habit, which is not what God has in mind. And you see, the trouble with that system of confession is that it's not at all about change, is it? 
It's not at all about change. It's just about us relieving our guilt. For many of us, confession is not even close to being about change. It's just about feeling better, going to sleep with a clear conscience, perhaps for just a few minutes. Are you playing any kind of confession game with God? Maybe it's to a priest, or maybe it's direct to God, or maybe it's to another person who you consider to be your confessor. But I believe that the bottom line for many Christ followers is that most of the time, we're not really that interested in changing our lives. Rather, we just want to feel better. We just want to feel better. We just want the guilt cloud that sort of hangs over our head to go away. We want the slate to be wiped clean. We want what I like to call cop God off of our case so that we can be back in his good, fun, pleasant, life-giving graces, right? And we play the confession game because our world told us somewhere along the way that the purpose of confession is just the relief of our conscience, which is just a fancy way to say that we confess so that we feel better about what we've done. But that is broken thinking, absolutely broken thinking. And contributing to that broken thinking is the fact that there's even some confusion within the language of confession. See, in English, the word confession means that you just admit or acknowledge something. And we all go, well, that's easy to admit or acknowledge something. But get this, in God's Word, in the Bible, confession always has a direct link to change, as in life change, as in I'm not the same. Confession, then, see, is just one stop along the journey that leads the guilty, that's us, out of the darkness of sin and into the light of transformation by the power of Jesus Christ and His Holy Spirit. That means that the confession deal then is just one piece of a larger process that leads to a change in lifestyle, a change in behavior, a change in attitude, a change in heart condition. I'm different. Now, you will not hear this in very many evangelical Christian churches these days, but I have to tell you that the early Catholics had this dialed in. They had this absolutely dialed in. If you read their early literature on penance and confession, they expand on the concept beyond confession being just about admission or acknowledgement. As I understand it, in the earliest days of Catholicism, a person could not confess the same sin over and over and over again. You got one shot at it because after your penance had been served, you were actually expected to change. Imagine that. You are actually expected to change by the whole system, expected to change. Look at the word penance, for example. It comes right out of the word repentance, which has in view, this is powerful, folks. It has in view a person walking one way, realizing the error of that way, and turning around and going in the completely opposite direction. I'm not going that way anymore. And God's word, the Bible, in almost every single application of the word confession, clearly connects this concept of confession with restitution, repentance, and restoration. Look what God tells Moses to tell the people of Israel in Numbers chapter 5, verses 6 and 7. Watch this. If any of the people, God speaking to Moses, that's what's going on here. If any of the people, men or women, betray the Lord by doing wrong to another person, they are what? They are guilty. They must do what? They must confess their sin and make full restitution for what they have done adding an additional 20% and returning it to the person who was wrong. God actually puts a price tag here on confession, the price of doing wrong. He assigns a value to it. And you notice in that verse you do not see anything there about confessing to feel better. This is all about making things right with God, making things right with people, the people you've wronged plus interest. The people you've wronged plus interest. Sorry does not come close to cutting it with God. He is all about life change. And I tell you the truth, talking publicly about your sin and then paying up, making restitution, motivates us to change, doesn't it? This past summer, two of our sons, Josh and Silas, they're 15 and 16, uh, almost 16 respectively, they wanted to go see a movie. 
Now, they watch a lot of movies at what they call the cinema, uh, sort of a holdover from what they call the theater in Ethiopia. They call it the cinema. And uh, they go to a lot of movies at the cinema, and so we've kind of got the system dialed in. It's an easy yes for us when they ask, as long as the movie is appropriate, of course. This particular night, they came to us. They said, hey, we want to see the certain movie at the certain time. We said, absolutely, that's just fine. Their uncle Derek, Dana's brother, happened to be there. He said, I'll take them over there. I told them I would be there roughly two hours after it started to pick them up. And so at the appointed hour when the movie should have been getting over, I tootle over to the big Gallatin Valley Mall and I park out in the parking lot and I wait. The appointed hour for the movie to end comes. A whole lot of people, 90% of the people in the theater emptied out. It's very late at night now. They empty out, they get in their cars, or they drive away. It's me and about eight other cars in the parking lot. I'm still waiting, 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 waiting. No Josh, no Silas. I wait about 45 minutes, and I'm a patient man, but my patience was running thin at 45 minutes at almost 1 o'clock in the morning. And so I dropped them a text. Hey, where are you boys? One of them, I think it was Joshua, responded first. He said, oh, movie not over yet. I'm like, what? You watching Ben-Hur or something? Like, what in the world? So I text back, huh? Exclamation point, exclamation, question mark, question mark, right? And then he texts back, yeah, we decided to go to a later one. Started later than we said. Uh, Josh intuits through this texting conversation, he's a smart boy, that this is not going well. So he toodles out of the theater and comes to the car. I roll down the window and I said, hey, uh, movie's over now. Go get your brother, bring him out here, and, and we're leaving. Okay, Dad. He scurries back in. Back come Josh and Silas. They both slide into the back seat. And I go, dudes, what was that? What was that? I wait for almost an hour now at almost 1 o'clock in the morning out here in this parking lot. And what, like, what, what's going on? Yeah, Dad, we decided to go to the later starting one. And I was like, well, you don't just do that without some sort of conversation. Like, at least... Ask, would that be okay? I would have said, sure, it'd be just fine. I'll just come later. I won't have to sit out there so long, right? And what do you think I got after sort of my mini lecture? What do you think I got from those guys? Yep, it's exactly right. Sorry, Dad. <laughs> sorry, Dad. And I'm going like, sorry? What? what in the world? In the language of love and logic, that ain't working for me. <laughs> sorry is not working for me. So I'm thinking all the way home. It's not that far from the cinema over to our house. And so I'm thinking in my head, what's the price? What's the restitution for me to sit for almost an hour at almost one o'clock in the morning out in the parking lot? And so I'm thinking, I'm thinking, ah, it comes to me. They'd been working all summer out at the car wash uh, in Four Corners. And so their wallets are bulging with cash. And so we pull into the driveway and it dawns on me Okay, boys, I shut the car off, and I said, here's the deal. Uh, me and your mom's time is valuable. We are not running a limousine service around here, just waiting in parking lots for you to emerge from whatever gathering you want to emerge from. We're totally open to amending plans. We just want there to be conversation around that. That was not at all cool what you just did. You can't do that anymore. And so because I had to wait out in the parking lot for an hour, that's going to cost you $50 each to me. And they did what many of you just did. Are you kidding me? <laughs> nope. I just put a price on my one hour in the parking lot. And they're like, they were just waiting like for the punchline or something. Like, no. I followed them into their room. I watched them dig their hard-earned money out of their wallets and hand it over. And I said, guys, I hate this. I do not want to do this, but I've got to help you learn that our time is valuable and you can't do that. Now, now does that make sense to you? I asked them. They're like, uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah, we get that. Isn't that right there exactly what God has in view? Numbers 5, 6, and 7. Making restitution, putting a price tag on poor behavior. Now, Lots and lots of you are sitting in your seats right now going, holy cow, I am so glad that that jerk is not my dad. <laughs> You're thinking it, admit it. You take a hundred bucks from your sons, your adopted sons to boot. <laughs> What's up with that? I gave them their money back. 
I gave them their money back. I let them squirm on the hook for about three days, letting them think that their hard-earned hundred bucks had gone to some other family cause. And then one night I stepped into their room and I said, guys, we love you. You know that we love you. But we just need you to be responsible and talk about changing plans before you just do it and then ask us to sort of pick up the pieces of that. And as I'm handing the money, they're going like, okay, 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 Dad. And, and I, I don't know what this says about me, but as I'm handing the money back to them, one of them, I don't remember which one, says, Dad, we knew you were going to give it back to us. We just weren't sure when you were going to give it back. I'm going like, ah, some kind of pushover or something. Come on. Restitution, folks, helps us in the behavior change process. Put a price tag on it. What's the price tag? And you cross over to the New Testament of the Bible, roughly the second half of your Bible. We see a guy named John the Baptist. He steps onto the scene, and he's not just talking about confession anymore. He's added a new piece to it, the repentance piece. Mark chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. This messenger was John the Baptist. He was in the wilderness and preached that people should be baptized to show they had repented of their sins and turned to God to be forgiven. That people should be baptized to show they had repented of their sin. That's that turn and walk in the opposite direction deal to be forgiven. All of Judea, including all the people of Jerusalem, went out to see and hear John. And when they confessed their sins, he baptized them in the Jordan River. What a scene that must have been. Nobody there on those days were just trying to feel better about their sin. They were stepping out publicly and leaving their sin in the rearview mirror. And you continue on a little later in the New Testament. We meet a tax collector named Zacchaeus. You know the story. He fleshed out the real deal, Old Testament kind of confession from the book of Numbers where there is restitution. There's a value assigned to it. But Zacchaeus, he blew the doors off the one-fifth deal. Now, lots of us have seen and sort of met Zacchaeus, right? Lots of us who grew up in Sunday school, we saw a little flannel graph Zacchaeus, right? He's got a little beard, he's got a little white hair, a little purple robe on, this cute little guy, and we picture him climbing up in this tree and waiting for Jesus to pass by. You know the song even, Zacchaeus was a wee little man. And you're like, wait a minute, you can't say that about people, a wee little man. Uh Uh-uh, that's not politically correct. Don't get to say that anymore. And the song goes on and on. But Zacchaeus, folks, was not a cute little man. He was not. He is a wicked, evil dude. He just was. He was a traitor to his own nation. He screwed over a bunch of his own people, which left a heap of relational wreckage in his wake. And what do you know? Jesus invites himself over to Zacchaeus' house, and Zacchaeus was changed. Zacchaeus was different. Zacchaeus found in Jesus Christ hope and forgiveness, newness of life that he didn't even know was available to him because he thought he was so bad. And Zacchaeus knew when he had that encounter with Jesus Christ, he knew that simply confessing his sins to Jesus wasn't enough. So look what he does, Luke 19, 8. Meanwhile, Zacchaeus stood before the Lord and said, I will give half my wealth to the poor, Lord. If I have cheated people on their taxes, I will give them back, watch this, four times as much. And look at Jesus' response, the next verse. Salvation, Jesus says, has come to this home today. For this man has shown himself to be a true son of Abraham. Whoa. Now Jesus could have certainly let Zacchaeus off of the restitution hook, right? He could have done that, but he doesn't. Instead, Jesus is going, look, I know you are absolutely for real because you're not screwing around. You're getting real serious about this real fast. I can tell, Jesus says, that your heart has changed because your behavior is dramatically changing right now. Things are different. And there's a lot more we could talk about from the text. I'd invite you to go to that James 5 passage I put on your notes page, that Matthew 5 passage. Uh, Do it sometime this week and press in more Words from the Lord on the role of confession in our lives. And here's where this lands for all of us. If you want to get serious and you want to slay the guilt monster, if you want to break the power of sin once and for all, we all, every last one of us, have to set about confessing to both God and the people, the persons, the groups 
who we have offended and hurt. Because you see, there is very real tangible power in confessing your sins to the people that you have sinned against. Because odds are, if you confess it to them, you're not going to do it again. It's embarrassing. You don't want to go there again. Now, you hear me say, confess them publicly, and I know what some of you have in heart and mind when I say that, and it freaks you out. Let me dial it down a little for you. You think when I say confess publicly, you have in mind standing on a stage like this and announcing it to large groups of people. That would be public, right? Like maybe we flash it up on the screens and say, Brian this week did this. He would like to confess for this. That isn't what I mean by public. Public is just that. It's public. It's to the person who you wronged. That's public. To the small group of people who you wronged. That's public. Don't just think public is large groups of people and taking out billboard space and painting it up there. Now, if you wrong large groups of people in gatherings like this, well, then you have responsibility, burden to stand up and confess this publicly. But it's not for everyone. It's for the people, the person, the small group that you wronged. Doesn't mean you have to put it on a billboard. And you do that because, you see, odds are that if you confess publicly to somebody, if you confess your sin, you're not going to do it again. And there's a, another loophole in the Christian faith, isn't there, that lots of us like to live with and stick with, and we just want to keep the confession deal between us and God, right? Because then we still have an out, see? Because then we can go back to God over and over and over and over and over again and confess the same thing over and over and over and over and over again without being held to account, without our feet being held to the fire, without somebody with skin on in our grill going, how's that going, Brian? But I guarantee you, if you have to confess to your boss that you inflated your numbers last month to make yourself look better than you really did on your sales report, first of all, if you get the privilege of keeping your job... I'll bet you won't next month inflate your numbers again. Especially if you know you'll have to confess it a second time and a third time and a fourth time. Confession is powerful. And slaying the guilt monster is not just a one-time open and shut deal. In order for the confession to be felt across our lives, it must become habitual. That starts with keeping short accounts with people. Don't let it stack up. Deal with it now with both God and the people who you've wronged. And I promise you, going public with your sin will have a purging effect on the guilt that's eroding your faith in God and affecting your relationships with other people. Andy Stanley sort of sums it up this way. He says, confession will break the death grip of guilt and set you free to embrace the future God has for you without dragging around the dead bones of your past. And what a life that is to be freed up. Do you have any unconfessed secrets? Are you playing the confession game? Are you merely trying to use confession to relieve your conscience, but not even thinking about actually changing your behavior? Folks, it's time. It's absolutely time to break that cycle through God's genuine confession. I got an email earlier this summer from a young lady who's a part of our church, uh, and in that email contained the story of another young lady who is part of our church, and the story was quite moving and powerful about how she had been transformed through her personal relationship with Jesus Christ, uh, as well as this weapon we've been talking about here today, the weapon of confession. Her name is Kayla, and we tracked her down, and we've asked her to share her story with us today. So would you please give Kayla Cox a very warm Journey Church welcome. Hi, everyone. My name is Kayla, and I'm a sophomore here at Montana State University. This past year, God's been transforming my life, and I wanted to share my story with you. You see, when I first came to college, I wasn't a Christian. I grew up knowing about God, and I'd call myself a Christian, but I didn't act like one. My family didn't go to church, not even for the holidays. And I also didn't like church because I didn't want some person up on stage telling me how I should act and what I should believe. And I came into college with the same mindset. When I came to college a year ago, I was completely emotionally broken. 
Two summers ago, I turned completely away from God. I didn't want anything to do with him. I shut him off from my life entirely, thinking that I'd be better off without him. I did things that he despises. I felt totally ashamed of my actions, and I carried around tremendous guilt. I felt guilty not only for the things that I had done, but also the things that were done to me. I was so ashamed that I couldn't even tell my mom, the person that I'm closest to. Because of the hurt and pain that someone caused me, I began looking for fulfillment in my life. I looked to things like drinking, but I didn't find it there. And I looked to guys, and I didn't find it there either. I needed something more in my life, but I was looking in all the wrong places. As my freshman year began, I was in the process of sorting out my life. And just as I had run out of options to turn to, God showed up. Looking back, I can see how God kept pursuing me even when I wasn't after him. I could have very well just ignored God and gone on with my life, but the reason I let God pursue me is because I had tried everything else and I thought, what do I have to lose? So I let God into my life. At freshman orientation last year, there were tons of booths set up on campus with different activities to choose from to sign up for. And one of the booths that I stopped at was InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. And for some reason, I put my name down on their sign-up sheet. And when school started, InterVarsity staff leader Julie and my small group leader Kelsey kept knocking on my door, inviting me to hangouts and Bible studies. And I kept going to InterVarsity events, but I can't begin to tell you how awkward I felt at first. I thought everyone could tell that I wasn't a believer and that I had no clue what I was doing. But I kept going to small group Bible studies, and I made some really good friends there. Everyone in our small group went to INSTEP, which is InterVarsity's fall retreat. And for me, that was when my small group leader, Kelsey, and I really connected. After that, we began to meet weekly and got to know each other even better. And I can remember one night in November when Kelsey called me, saying that she went to this church service that she thought I would really benefit from. And I flat out told her that I wasn't interested because I wasn't a church person, but she kept insisting, so I went. And at the time, she didn't know the details of my past that I was trying to deal with, but as it turns out, the service was exactly what I needed to hear. It was about feeling shame for things in your past, and the service just destroyed the curtain that I was hiding behind, and it opened up a flood of issues I was finally able to release. And since that day, I've come to love church. And after that night, I felt so comfortable to talk with Kelsey about the things in my past that I was struggling with. And these issues were the most personal things I had, and I didn't want to have to deal with them. It would have been so much easier to just forget about the past. But I took a leap, and I let God into every aspect of my life. That night, I confessed to Kelsey everything that was eating me up inside. And by doing that, not only did I become a lot closer with Kelsey, but I also became a lot closer with God as well. Confessing to Kelsey gave me the courage to finally confess to God. And talking to God's hard because you can't always see him or realize that he's there. But for me, confessing to God was the first step to changing my life. I've learned firsthand that if you just confess to God whatever's on your mind, he'll help you through it. Though God already knew what I'd done in my past, I still had to confess everything to him before he could heal me. And after a couple months, God had done quite a bit of healing in me, and I felt like I wanted to change my life once and for all. So one Sunday at the end of January, I went to Journey Church as usual. But for me, this day was special. The sermon was all about the exact issues that I was dealing with. And I felt God really speaking to me and calling me into his kingdom once and for all. That was the day that I was finally able to call myself a Christian and truly mean it. I really needed to be saved from the pain that I was in, and I discovered that God was the only way. About six months ago, I accepted him as my savior, and since then, I feel like a completely different person. Becoming a Christian was the best thing that I've ever done, but it's also been one of the toughest things I've done. Because there are things I've done in my life that I'm not proud of, but it was because of God's grace and forgiveness that I was able to be set free. God's forgiven me beyond anything I ever deserve, and it's because of this that I was in turn able to forgive others. I didn't want to just be another Christian, but I wanted my life to change because I now follow God. And I knew that meant I had to do the hardest thing that I've ever had to do, which is forgive the person in my life who hurt me the most. It took an entire year, but this summer, through continuously spending time with God, 
he gave me the strength to finally forgive the person who I never thought I'd be able to forgive, and also to confess to the person who I'd been too ashamed to confess to. I've lived with my mom my whole life because my parents are divorced. My mom and I spend a lot of time together, and she's a person in my life who I'm closest to. If I ever need to talk, she's a person I know will always be willing to listen. Even though my mom and I are so close, I had been hiding a chunk of my life from her because I was too ashamed to tell her. But this summer, God said it on my heart that I should tell my mom the things that I was struggling with. And I was so scared to tell her because I didn't want her perception of me to change. But I decided to listen to God, and about three weeks ago, I finally confessed to my mom the things of my past I was hiding. And I'm so glad I did because it's brought us so much closer. She can finally see what I've had to overcome, and it's made us a lot stronger. God did the impossible with me. He met me in my darkest place, though I rejected him time and time again. I don't even want to think about where I'd be right now if it wasn't for him. I need God because there are things in my life that I just can't do on my own power. He led me out of misery and into healing, and because of that, I want others to experience how powerful he is. So I encourage you, if you were like I was, not too sure if you want to let God into your life because you feel too ashamed, I challenge you to ask God into your life and just see what he can do. It's not easy, and it requires a lot of effort and risks, but your life could very well be changed for the better. If you give God a chance, he will not let you down. Isn't that cool? Jeez, that is so cool. And that right there, Kayla's life, her story, that just reminds us why we do what we do. Why we do what we do. Why we live how we live as Christ followers. Because God wants to change people's life. He wants to save people. He wants to set them on a whole new course of living. Thank you, Kayla, for sharing powerful words. Why don't you just take your stuff and set them set it all aside if you would and I just invite you to close your eyes and bow your heads and just move into the time of listening and reflection with the Lord please Everything we've been talking about here today lands sort of right in our lap at the same place it did for Kayla not all that long ago. Have you, you, made the same choice that Kayla made to step across the line of faith into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? Being a Christian is not just about religion. It's not just about church service attendance. It's about a personal relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ. The one who lived, the one who died, the one who was risen for you. So have you taken him up on his offer of unconditional love, forgiveness, life change that leads to freedom from guilt? Have you taken Jesus up on his offer of debt relief? The debt you owe him to be paid off once and for all. If that's you, if that's the desire of your heart, I just invite you right where you're sitting to pray along with me a prayer that goes something like this. God in heaven, I admit, I confess that I've been living my life far from you. And once and for all, I want a relationship with you. God, would you please come into my life? Would you please forgive me? As much as I get it right now, right at the starting line of this deal, as much as I get it here, I acknowledge that Jesus Christ loved me so much that he died on the cross to bring me back to God. And so I repent. I was going that way, and I'm turning around, and I'm going your way, God. Help me, please, begin that new life in you. And if you prayed with me just then to give your life to Jesus Christ, to make the same choice that Kayla made, 
It's a powerful decision, the biggest one of your whole life, actually. And it's such a big deal that around here we invite people to tell us when they make that decision. And I'm going to ask you to do that with me right now. Nobody's going to embarrass you. Nobody is looking around this room except me. If you prayed with me just then, would you be so bold as to just slip your hand up and make eye contact with me and and just say, yes, I stepped across the line of faith in Jesus Christ. Just be bold right where you're sitting. You can do it. Yeah, right, right over here. Yeah. Way to go. Way to go. Way to go. Just hold it up high so I can see. Yeah, you two right back there. See both of you. Way to go. And you right there. Yes. God's changing you right now. Never in here and there and back there to my left and all the way in the back to my right. Yes. And right here, right up front. Yeah, way to go. And right here, I see you. God's changing you right now. And then there's another piece of all of this. Perhaps some of us who are here, we've been a Christian for a long, long time. But lots and lots and lots of us have work to do around this confession deal. We actually want our confession to be about life change, about living differently, about our lives being transformed by the power of Jesus Christ. And so I don't know what that looks like for you, but I just challenge you, you and the Lord, press in. Square that up with him. Cement whatever decisions you need to do to walk that out differently than you have been. He's inviting you and challenging you to it right here, right now, today. Just settle it up once and for all. Thanks, God, for loving us the way you do. Thanks, God, for forgiving us. Thanks, God, for teaching us what it looks like to know you and follow you. The goal of our life is really to make you look good, God. And so help us walk this confession deal out. Help us leave the guilt monster dead and buried, Father, so that we would live as free followers of Jesus Christ, freed up, unencumbered, cutting a swath for your kingdom, Father. You're the best, and we worship you with our whole lives, God.